Dear God, thank you for the day. Thank you for the rain last night. Thank you for the beautiful day yesterday and Friday. And thank you for giving us your word, Lord. And I pray here at the end of uh, the book of Galatians that you have been reflected well, Lord, that uh, we have glorified you in the process and that we've come to know you better. We owe you everything, Father, and we thank you for a Savior that gives us eternal life. In Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, my intention is to finish today. We have Galatians chapter 6. In fact, we may finish a little bit early, which I think is would be good because I'd just love to get your uh, thoughts back at the end of the book. Uh, if this... Uh, look has given you any different insight or uh, deeper insight or what your just what your takeaway is from the book of Galatians after we've been here these few weeks anyway so I believe we'll have a few minutes at the end okay so let's start we are into uh, chapter 6 at the beginning uh, and we are in verse 1 and I will read brethren if anyone is caught in any trespass you who are spiritual Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. To understand this first verse of chapter 6, we need to explore really the meaning of restoration. And by that I mean the meaning as Scripture presents it. But first let me just say that one of the reasons we're able to have full confidence in the Bible, in God's Word, is its constancy. True scholarship, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, assures us that the Bible is a unit. It is completely cohesive. It is without error or contradiction. Therefore, when we look to the New Testament for instruction, we must look at all of it. What the inspired authors, authors wrote to one church is in agreement which was written to the other churches. In Luke chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus is giving some instructions to the disciples on when a brother sins, and this is what he says, Luke 17, verse 3, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And then further, when Paul learned that someone in the church at Corinth was a fornicator, in other words, he was uh, committing immorality with his father's wife, he told the Corinthians this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. He wrote, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, ha what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now in that incident, this disciplined brother apparently later repented and he was restored to fellowship in the church. And then at that time, Paul wrote this following in chapter, in uh, the second book of Corinthians in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, where he says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow 
Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, I have for, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. So then we see here just what is biblical discipline, what's it designed to accomplish, and that is restoration. Now if we read uh, in Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 1, if we do that without considering what the related passages tell us, we might assume that if a Christian brother or sister is overtaken in any trespass, then their error should be overlooked. That is, no one should judge them unless they themselves be judged. This verse, Galatians 6, 1, says nothing about reproof, rebuke, or repentance. It simply says restore. But that word restore is key to what Paul is communicating. Restoration is this process alluded to by both Jesus and Paul in the preceding verses. Uh, <clears throat> if we look at it, Jesus advocated the following in dealing with a brother's sin. If you remember, first it was trespass brings rebuke and then rebuke brings repentance. And finally, repentance brings forgiveness and thus restoration. Similarly, Paul taught the, the Corinthians that sin requires discipline, which in turn produces repentance, which resulted in restoration. Therefore, his instructions to the Galatians to restore the faulty believer was not suggesting that they simply overlook sin based on their own propensity to do the same. This knowledge, that is that none of us is immune to temptation, should equip us with compassion and mercy, but it should not blackmail us into tolerating sin, not in ourselves and not in fellow Christians. Restoring the sinner and overlooking sin, these are not synonymous. Any comments? Yes. I do too. Right? I think that if we're keeping step with one another and comparing ourselves to one another, we are susceptible to pride. We are susceptible to, to a feeling of superiority that, that uh, through that we actually sin ourselves. And I think that's the biggest issue with judgment, is that judgment is not to, to elevate you above someone else. Very good. It's actually to restore someone else what God's calling them to do, right? Yes. And so we're brothers with one another. We're raising one another up. We're not pushing other people down so that we can feel more superior. Very good. And that, that issue existed in the Old Testament uh, throughout the justice system that, the, that Israel had established, and God shows them again and again that he's the judge. Not, we're not the judges. Right. right. 
And our job is to, is to be brothers to one another and raise them up, not to elevate ourselves. And I think that's the big temptation, personally, that, okay. that goes with that. That's very good. Any others? All right, we'll move on. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. So this passage then is emphasizing the importance of believers to be encouraging one another in times of trial. There should be no such thing as a totally independent Christian. This is what God word, God's Word tells us. Let us. Paul lets us know that we're part of the same body that is the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'll just take verses uh, 14 through 18, 1 Corinthians 12. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now... God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he has desired. So practically speaking then, if I think I'm something when I'm nothing, I'm just deceiving myself. That is, if I'm reluctant to bear another brother's burden, it may indicate a lack of my identity with him. That is, maybe he's not my problem. Perhaps in my mind I think I'm better than he is. And in that case, I'm thinking of myself too highly. That would reveal something negative about my attitude and character, though. And I'd only be deceiving myself. Now, when Paul says, but each one must examine his own work, he's letting us know that every believer will give an account, an account of themselves. Yes, we're to help and encourage one another, but we should not develop a, a codependent attitude by assuming that there's always someone around to shoulder every burden that comes along. Some of those burdens are of our own creation and by which God intends for us to be taught. That is, not all of our burdens and responsibilities are meant to be corporate because, by the way, that is what human socialism teaches. And that results in people who are crippled by dependency on programs and bureaucracies and welfare. The church is not meant to be some form of a religious socialism. In fact, the Bible is filled with exhortations and regarding the physical realm, uh, reasons to be productive. Here are just uh, two of such scriptures that tell us Paul's thinking, God's thinking. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Proverbs 6, great, verses 6 through 11 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, 
a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. So Paul's overall message, I believe here, in Galatians is that believers should be quick to recognize another's needs, that we should share in their burdens and offer help and render aid, which is our responsibility to other believers. But at the same time, as individuals, we're to be slow to solicit help or burden others unnecessarily with personal circumstances, which is what Paul means when he says, for each one will bear his own load. Any thoughts on that? Okay, moving along, Galatians 6, 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. This verse, I can't tell you how it's been uh, misused and abused. Uh, in this verse, Paul wants the Galatians to see and understand that there's a correlation between intangible things, like the teaching of God's word, and material things, meaning financial or material provision. Basically, He's telling them to pay your pastor. Now, in this phrase, share all good things, I, I would say that that includes praying for them also and giving them spiritual support. Now, I don't think we do, but we should never take for granted what Charlie does from the pulpit each Sunday. The teaching of God's Word is a ministry which proceeds from the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And the diligent exercise of that ministry is a responsibility that that teacher pretty much is required to fulfill. Although financial gain is not the true motive of a true teacher, when a service is rendered that has eternal value and uh, <clears throat> it is worthy of remuneration from those who have received the benefit, Paul's support for this principle may be found elsewhere in Scripture for instance, uh, in teaching the same lesson to the Corinthian church, he referred to the, little, the Levitical priesthood in order to illustrate the importance of valuing and rewarding the work of those who minister of the things of God. This is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, where it says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly, regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul further highlights this concept of duty on the side of the ones who benefit from those who share the gospel. And this can be found in Romans chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. It says, for Macedonia and Achaia, these were Gentile regions, they've been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. These would have been Christian Jews. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they, they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Unfortunately, today this principle of paying your pastor. This has been greatly abused. And this has occurred when false teachers, I'll just call them wolves, when they have seen religion as a lucrative business for lining their pockets by simply fleecing gullible people. I'm sure you can think of several current examples in our culture, such that I don't need to name them. 
And it's interesting, I think, then, that Paul follows verse 6 here in Galatians with these next two verses where he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You know, if there's a singular purpose for the Galatian letter, it's to cause the Galatians to see that the law speaks to the flesh. And it's really the basis for God's judgment. On the other hand, it's the, it's the Spirit of God that actually produces righteousness and pleases the Father. Listen uh, to what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 10 and 13 and 14, where he says, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led of the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He's telling us that even Christian flesh cannot produce righteousness by attempting to keep the law. Only the Holy Spirit that dwells in us produces righteousness. And it's no wonder then that believers, if we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. Everything associated with the flesh is essentially death. Even our fleshly bodies, they're going to have to be changed before we can even enter the kingdom of God. The bottom line is that if we are led by our sensual desires, the result is always going to be corruption. But good news. The good news is that we're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if that spirit dwells in us. Romans 8 9 makes it clear. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And this being the case, then we're no longer compelled, we're no longer obligated to respond to the demands of our flesh. And sin does not have dominion over us. Therefore, we're free to be led by the Spirit. And when that happens, we're able to reap life everlasting. And that's not only in the future, something that we look forward to, it's in the here and now. Eternal life. Any thoughts on that? Kevin? Sorry. No problem. Um, so I've been studying reaping what you sow, and that following after, sharing in, in what you teach or get kind of right. thing. It points me back to Habakkuk 2.4 where Habakkuk is crying out to God, why do you, why do you allow injustice? You know, why With the Babylonians. Yeah. Well, it's even before the Babylonians, I think Habakkuk is crying out about Israel. And then God responds and says that he's going to send Babylon. Right. And it's going to be much different than you even think it is. Right? But he's mm -hmm. going to punish the injustice with more yes, injustice. That's right. right. And defeat uh, basically uh, the devil through his own spears. Right? Um, but in, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Right. Which is then quoted in Romans 1.17. And it's basically saying that pride puffs us up and makes us crooked. So our accomplishment of righteousness does not actually help us, right? It's through faith in God that we're actually, that we actually live, not through our keeping of the law, basically. Right. 
And that's the same thing Romans 1.17 says, uh, where it says, again, uh, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Right. And I think that's what, that's partially what Galatians 6, 6 is saying. The one who is taught uh, the word will share all his good things with the teacher. And if, you're, if your motivation is fleshly, if your motivation is to raise yourself up uh -huh. for the correction of others, then you're going to share in the destruction. Right. Right? If your motivation is to actually help someone else to, and, and it's in faith in God and dependence on his righteousness, not your own righteousness, right. then I think you share in, in that. And it, it, it just sticks out to me that it's never been about the keeping of the law. The law is to reveal sin in us. Right. not to justify. But you can reach this point in this when you're experiencing this righteousness coming through, and it is very hard to keep from being prideful in that process. And there is nothing to boast in but in the Lord Jesus Christ only, even if you're hitting on all eight cylinders as a Christian. Don't think that's you. Right. And it's hard to separate sometimes, but we have that power within us. We don't have to be ruled by sin. Right. You don't have to. The natural man has to and is. But we have an option. Okay, let's keep going. Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So what they're talking about here, having done, time, having done good, that's, he's talking about sowing to the Spirit. Sometimes the results are not immediately encouraging let us say and this can cause us then to refrain from doing that again from doing good and instead only do what benefits us the most that is to live in our flesh the Galatian believers had at the first they'd been attracted to Paul and to his teaching and he told us earlier in the book that uh, they had even recognized his physical need if you remember and they'd been quick to minister to him and they had, they had befriended Paul and they had been converted to the gospel but these false teachers the Judaizers, they had now convinced the Galatians that they had been wrong to trust Paul and their friendship had been turned to enmity. So here in these verses that we just read, it's not for his sake but for theirs that Paul is exhorting them to persevere in goodness. It is not good to tire quickly from doing good. and We should not be easily dissuaded from doing what is right, especially when the recipient is a fellow believer. But in these, per, uh, in these verses, Paul is able to confidently promise that there is a, a reward. Listen, for every good thing that is done, when he says, whatever we sow, we will reap. And even though the crop may be slow to appear, we're not to give in in discouragement. We're not to, we are to do right because it is right. But keep in mind, as Kevin, you were saying, the, the reward should not be the motivation. It is the dividend that we receive. Okay, Galatians 6, verses 11 through 13. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire you to, have circum they desire you to be circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So we probably know that it's not easy for Paul to write. We, we 
got an uh, indication of this er uh, other times in other books. It's commonly thought that he dictated his epistles, which may be an indication that Paul's physical ailment had something to do with his eyes. Whether Paul is talking about only the postscript, postscript of the book here or the entire letter being written by his own hand, he is drawing attention, the Galatians' attention, to this fact. And it was probably to demonstrate how urgent he is feeling about the letter's contents and how much he loves and has vital concern for them. He just wanted them to realize the deception of the Judaizers that was going down. Paul says that all of the Judaizers' message boiled down to this. Did you see it? Avoiding the cross of Christ. They had made righteousness a matter of mere outward behavior. And in order for the Judaizers Judaizers to have a good showing in the flesh they needed converts and circumcision was the initiation rite. This would keep the Galatians on a course of law keeping as their road to righteousness but in order to do so the Judaizers had to do something. They had to eliminate the message of the cross because for one reason the cross represented suffering and persecution. First of all the suffering of Jesus he was despised and he was the one to whom they would not have rule over them. The Judaizers could not accept Christ's atoning death as full payment for their sin. For to do so would mean that they were no longer on their own but had been bought with a price. And that in turn would require the acknowledgement of his right to be Lord. I think this is what is in the heart of natural man. Secondly, the acknowledgement of Calvary meant that the believer might have a cross to bear by way of persecution. The suffering that might entail was not acceptable to those who could not understand salvation by faith. Now even though these false teachers preached circumcision and they were probably circumcised like all people, even they would not have been able to keep the law. Yet they demanded that the Galatians become circumcised so that they could boast in the Galatians' flesh. And all of this is just folly. But such is the hollow message that the Judaizers had brought to the Galatians. You know, Jack, it's yes. amazing how when you go through this, you just realize that uh, everything from the world, even things that have come into the church, is to undermine the all-sufficiency of Christ. That's right. It's the, it's, the cross of Christ. Right, absolutely. How significant that event was. Everything rotates around that, all of, all of the uh, world history. Yes. As you were reading this, I was thinking about uh, you know, take up your cross. And we tend to think of take up your cross as, I tend to think of it at least as, you know, I, I've got to be prepared for negative things to happen. Right? That I've, that I've, got to stop, I've got to put aside my comfort, my these things. But I, I, I think I can get, I get trapped in that just as easily as I can get trapped in that. <coughs> Right. Um, struck me, and I wrote that down. I've come back to that a lot of times. But right. That's that as a believer. That's my. That should be my goal. That's right. That, that's what it is to be in Christ. Is to be yielded. 
Right. And, and I tend to, I tend to, in my mind, say, well, this is what he, you know, this is what he has. And he has said, yes, you can expect persecution, but that's not all we can expect. You know, what, right. what the anticipation is is him. Right. It's like, God, you're in charge, and I'm going to go over here and tell me what to do, <laughs> uh, you know, or lead me over here, you know. It's, it's to make him totally in charge is what we're to do. Very good. Yes, please. Just, that's Jeff's point about yieldedness. That's really what, what Paul is arguing here, that the, the presentation of the law by the Judaizers, it's really their presentation is the law is there to show you that you are self-sufficient. When it's like, no, 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 it's there to confront you with your own vulnerability, and you're not going to like that because you're going to be confronted with the truth that you do not have the strength and that the thing you claim as strength is just the straw straw man fallacy that is easily pushed over. Right. And at that point of discovery and honesty, that's where the living God, though, brings to you a hope that is not in yourself. And that is, that is the truth of the hope that we have is not a, a man-constructed artifact, no. but there is, a, there is a true dialogue. And that, that difficulty, though, is I know for me, it's having to take vulnerability and be honest with the Lord about blessings that I'm sometimes frustrated with. And then I have to be confronted with how petty I am and how easily dissatisfied mm -hmm. I am and how grouchy I am and how childish I am and all these things that I'm trying to teach my kid. Well, don't do that. Right. But the love that I still receive and the grace that I receive is just absolutely incredible. Right. But it is through vulnerability. And that also, it, it's, it's not what I planned for, but it is also a cure for that pride. Right. That what, what you uh, pointed out from Corinthians, where he says, it's a test to see if you'll be obedient in all. Right. Exactly. And obedience carries that vulnerability. Right. But in that, there's that as I expect myself to fail, and then the Lord is faithful, then it is, it is, it is something easy to be humble and to say, yeah, I am, I am really dumb. I am right. really dumb, but let me tell you about Jesus. There you go. And, you know, it's just sad that so many could have had the law that had a purpose and just fail to see it and fall into, get sucked into its, its uh, pr uh, process of condemnation and never come out of it, and add to it even, and then build everything, a uh, religion on it and all that. And then... You have a place in your religion, but you have nothing. You don't have the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have eternal life in that. Kevin. So uh, what Luby's saying, I think, is, is that's basically what the gospel is. You know, the law reveals us and our mm -hmm. ability to, uh, to, to, to be perfect. Right. What God needs, to be, needs us to be, right? And it's only through Christ. And that's exactly the way the book of Habakkuk ends. Yeah. I mean, this is not a new story in the New Testament. This is the same story in the Old Testament. Right. And, and Habakkuk in, in, chap, in chapter 3, verse 16, at the end of the book, says, Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled where, where I stood. And then the very last verse of the book is, The Lord my Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer. Right. And enables my feet, and enables me to walk on the mountain heights. And it so points to Christ. Amen. You know, everything points to Christ, not us. I totally agree. I totally agree. Let's keep going. Uh, Galatians, uh, 
6 verses 14 through 16, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and grace be upon them and upon the Israel of God. While the Judaizers were glorifying in the circumcision of the flesh, which was only a symbol, as we're talking about, Paul was contending for what it actually symbolized, circumcision of the heart. You brought that up last week. The truth of that is that believers have nothing to glory in except Christ himself and the work that he accomplished on the cross. And the magnitude of the significance of the cross is incomprehensible to the world and even to believers. All of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil were fully and finally dealt with in Christ's death. And none of the sins for which he died can ever be charged against the new man that believers have become through trusting Christ as their Savior. And by his resurrection, we have been justified. Listen, Romans 4.25. He, Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised from the dead because of our justification. Also, the believer and the world are crucified to each other, we read in the verse. Although we're still in the world, we're no longer part of it. Our citizenship has been transferred to heaven. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 makes it clear. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject, subject all things to Himself. And then positionally, we're now, right now, believe it or not, we are seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2 states this very fact in verses 4 through 7. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us, past tense, with Him in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul just wants these Galatians to believe what God believes about them already. Paul understood that God knows all of the saints of the church died with His Son and further that they were raised with Him in His resurrection as new creatures. And this is what Paul believed about himself as well. There's a term in here, the, the Israel of God, that Paul refers to. I'm not exactly certain what he means when he says that, but I am pretty certain what he does not mean. Probably too much unbiblical theological discussion is revolved around this phrase. So there are some that have interpreted it to mean that the church has replaced the historic nation as now God's Israel, and they've mistakenly concluded that Israel as a nation is no longer part of God's plan, and that all of their, their promises are now spiritualized and applied to the church. Not surprisingly, none of those curses came across. This idea, of course, is nowhere to be found in Scripture. Consequently, as prophecy is currently being fulfilled in an obvious way in modern Israel, those who adhere to this replacement type of theology are totally missing what God is doing. Now, in another place, Jude, uh, Paul has been rather succinct in giving his position that would pertain to this. 
uh, term when he says, uh, Romans 2, verses 28 through 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And there he could be referring to all believers who've been born again, who are the true descendants of Abraham. However, in that verse, he does he adds the conject, uh, conjection. Where was I? The uh, he says, "Mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God." Now there are some pretty well-respected scholars out there that I have looked at. One of those is the late Charles Ryrie, and he believed that the Israel of God would be referring to people who are both physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham, and that's pretty plausible, meaning Christian Jews. Yes? To the promises of the root of the, of the olive tree, right, which is the covenant. Right, but he's made his distinction, this group and this group of believers. Uh, so I don't know what it means exactly, yes. It could, but he's, he's used it specifically and in, in distinction to the Galatian believers who were primarily Gentiles. So I don't know. The, you know, if this is the case, then Carol, you're the only part of the Israel of God in the room today that I'm aware of. But I didn't mean to, I told you I was going to embarrass you anyway. Uh, okay. Let's go. We have made it now to the last uh, two verses of Galatians. Um, where it says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Paul has suffered a lot for the gospel that he preached. In fact, he'd endured, if you think about it, read his pedigree, shipwreck, beatings, imprisonment. One time, he was preaching to a group who even took him out and stoned him and left him for dead. You know, he may have been dead, actually. Uh, and all of these incidents, they left scars on Paul's body. I bet he was a sight to behold. And these were evidence of the persecutions that he had suffered for the sake of the gospel. To Paul, the gospel was not a matter of theological argument. It was a matter of life and death. The Judaizers who had come to dissuade the Galatian believers had not suffered such things for the message they were preaching, the preaching of the law. In fact, they were part of those who were persecuting the gospel. Their influence among the Galatian churches has been what troubled Paul. And this is why he has written the letter. Paul was urging the Galatians to flee from these heresies. His claim was this. They had been taught not to trust him. He's telling them, I'm your apostle. He was the one who brought the true gospel, and he'd done it at a great price, carrying it not just to them, but throughout the then-known world. The marks of Paul's apostleship were literally carved into his flesh by whip and rod at the hands of Jews and Romans. And what he's doing here, he's contrasting this circumcision branding that they were having put before them to what he really had on his body, his marks. He had not profited materially, on the contrary, it had been at great, great expense, financially, socially, and physically. 
that he had brought this liberating message of the cross to him. And his bottom line here at the end of the book is to the Galatians, you can trust me. And so it, in, so it is that he ends this letter. Notice what he doesn't say. The law of Mount Sinai be with your flesh. No, he says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. End of book. We do have a few minutes then, if anyone would like to say anything about the book or the message or what you've gotten from it. Amen. There's an old hymn, Trust and Obey. There's no other way. Amen. Says it all, doesn't it? The gospel is transformative and simple. Trust Christ. Very well said. Very good. Jeff, since you're here, I'll let you close us today. And I'm just going to say, I, I think in all these things, I, I, the word that always comes back around is humility. It's just, you know, we, it's, easy to, it's easy to look at these things and to go, yeah, okay, you know, but if I'm not, if I come out in, in any spirit other than humility, I'm going to fall in the face. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall in the temptation. Now pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness, for your love for us, for your patience with us, that you are so good. Thank you for Jack and for the time that he's put in and for the, the, the book of Galatians, for Paul and, and the writings that you use him to uh, put into your love letter to us. And we thank you for your word and for all that you constantly show us to us. And I pray that the things that we have heard, we have been feeling that we will be yielded to you. And thank you and praise you for all your goodness. Amen. Amen.